Hey everybody, Brad here, and for this week's sermon, we actually have a guest preacher. His name is Jason Walsh, and Jason is the one of the pastors at Denver Presbyterian Church. He's also been a professor of spiritual formation at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis, where I went to seminary. Uh, but he's also been a friend. Uh, he and his wife, Nina, have been friends to my wife, Hannah, and I for almost 15 years now. And it's pretty easy to be Jason's friend, honestly, because uh, he is one of those pastors who most exemplify and personify that part of pastoring that is being a shepherd to people because his heart and care and love for people is, is frankly, it's, it's, it's pretty inspiring. And so this morning, or whenever it is that you are watching this, uh, he will be preaching from a book in the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Now, if you've never heard of Habakkuk or you just said, you know, God bless you or Gesundheit to the screen when I said the word Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk is one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And when I say minor, I don't mean it's one of the, the less important or less significant prophets in the Old Testament. I mean that it is one of the shorter ones. In fact, it's only a few chapters long. But what's really unique and interesting about Habakkuk that, that Jason gets into quite a bit with this uh, sermon in particular, is that we have this conception uh, that the prophets are, are, these, are these representatives of God that are telling God's people what he needs them to hear. Um, they're telling God's people what he's commanding them or reminding them of God's covenantal love and faithfulness and that they can trust him. Uh, they also sometimes predict the future in the sense that they are telling God's people, this is what's going to happen. But Habakkuk is a little bit different in that um, it actually starts with a, a series of complaints, not from God toward his people, but from God's people to God. In this case, Habakkuk is serving in a lot, a lot of ways as a two-way street uh, between God and his people. And he's, but, but the prompt here is, is actually complaining to God. And that's, that's really significant because a lot of us either grew up with or just assume or have actually explicitly been taught that God doesn't want to hear your complaints, that God, that's not how you pray, that he, he's not interested in or, or is somehow less, uh, it's, it's less faithful uh, to, to pray, to complain to God in, in prayer. Nothing could be further from the truth, actually. And, and Jason's sermon on Habakkuk actually demonstrates how Gosh, that God loves us so much that, that we can bring even our complaints about what God is doing to him. And in not unclear language either. So uh, without further ado, here's Jason. As we turn now to the sermon, we're going to be looking at the continued pattern of complaint and response of Habakkuk. And Habakkuk, in his time, was someone who spoke the truth of the Lord to the people, sometimes addressing the people, sometimes the prophet would address the peoples surrounding God's people, but his book is unique, Habakkuk is unique, because he speaks directly to God, and it is a wonderful way for us to study and to learn it is a wonderful book. It's an old book. It was written in probably the 7th century BC. And so it, though it is removed from us by centuries, it has struck me time and again as I've been preparing this sermon series, as I've been preaching, as I've been reflecting and considering what the Lord has for us in it, just how relevant 
and contemporary it feels. Now, I am not always the most relevant and contemporary fellow. I'm in the time of my life where every movie that I grew up with is now that really old movie. I could try to resist this, but it's no longer worth arguing about. The movies that I watched as a kid are all very old. So, now that we're all prepared for Pastor Jason's Old Movie Minute, trademark, let's remember, or at least pretend to know what I'm talking about when I bring up the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark. Early in that movie, it is established that the main character, Indiana Jones, does not like snakes. He hates snakes. His pilot friend has a snake, and Indiana is scrambling to keep away from this snake, even though that particular snake is a docile and friendly boa constrictor, a kind of snake that many people would keep as pets, even now. Later in the movie, after lots of intrigue and chases and sneaking around and fighting Nazis, seriously, if you've not seen this movie, I am confident that you would want to by now. It had it all. Anyway, Indy has found a hidden chamber in an archaeological dig. Oh yeah, he's an archaeologist. He's so smart and tough and adventuring, and he has this really great hat, although if I were to wear that hat, I would just look like I was trying too hard, so I'll just let him wear that hat. So he's found this hidden chamber, right? And with his team of helpers, he has slid the stone slab off the top of this chamber, and Indy's friend, Sala, peers over his shoulder and says, why does the floor move? It's still dark in that chamber. So Indy takes a torch and he drops it into the chamber and the light reveals what is inside. There's a thick carpet of snakes all over the floor of the chamber. And Indy, despondent, rolls over and says aloud, mostly to himself, snakes. Why did it have to be snakes? That feeling, that feeling of, of course, it is even worse than I imagined, is so well captured in that scene. And I think that that sense of dread, of assuming that something is going to be bad and finding out that it's even worse, that is a feeling that is very relatable. It might not be snakes for you individually. It might be getting a flat tire when you are already behind schedule or emerging from self-quarantine to find out that one of the handful of people you had contact with is now symptomatic. Whatever it is, we can identify that feeling. And bringing up that feeling might be a good way for us to prepare for hearing Habakkuk's second complaint to Yahweh. Habakkuk has begun his prophetic writing with a complaint to the Lord. The people of Judah are violent and idolatrous. It was a complaint of, do something, Lord. And that not only drew our attention to the severity of the decline of God's people in that time, but it also spoke of the intimacy and the confident faith of Habakkuk in addressing God in so direct a way. And the Lord responds, his response was essentially, I am doing something, and it will amaze you. You are not going to believe this. And when he hears the Lord's response, that the Lord is raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to punish the sin of the people of Judah, Habakkuk speaks to the Lord again. Now when he speaks, he has a lot to say. So I'm going to encourage you to follow along as I read the passage this morning. The book of Habakkuk is in the Old Testament. 
It's between the book of Nahum and Zephaniah. Um, If you're not familiar with where that is, if you open your physical copy of the Bible and find yourself in the middle in the Psalms, just take a right and keep flipping. And um, as you get to Habakkuk, I'm going to be reading from chapter 1, verse 12, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 1. So if you will, follow along as I read the word of the Lord for us. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook and he drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. Let's pray together that the Lord will help us to understand his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, through Jesus Christ, amen. In this second complaint, Habakkuk really throws down. He really is being confrontational with Yahweh. And in his second complaint, Habakkuk is concerned with three entities, them, you, and us. As Habakkuk considers them, he comes to a very thorny question, a question we all must wrestle with from time to time. But let's first consider the entities that Habakkuk brings up. First of all, in this passage, he's basically saying them, them, the Babylonians. Why does it have to be the Babylonians? They are traitors, They are wicked. They swallow up the more righteous person, the more righteous peoples around them. And as he is addressing this, Habakkuk brings up that the way the Babylonians treat other people groups around them, other nations around them, they treat them as casually as a fisherman. So he uses this fisherman analogy, this imagery of this arrogant fisherman who is the most apt description of how little the Babylonians consider the lives of the people they oppress. They treat human beings like a fisherman treats fish. They consider the lives of the people they oppress so little that they ravage and pillage. They ravage and pillage them like they're just pulling a dragnet to gather all the fish in the body of water that they're working. They bring them in by hooks and by nets And they're so impressed with how well 
they subjugate the peoples around them, that this fisherman in the picture that Habakkuk is giving worships the tackle. He worships the nets and the hooks that he used to bring in this big, abundant kill. They think of their might and their tools, their engines of war. They think of those as something to be worshiped rather than the true God of the universe. The Babylonians are oppressive and their oppression gives them luxury and ease, rich food to eat. These are a terrible people. They invoke terror. They dispense terror. This is the them that Habakkuk is talking about. The Babylonians oppressing people as their empire gains strength and they gather momentum in their multiple conquests of the lands and the peoples around them. This is a terrifying image. And in some ways, the sense in which Habakkuk is saying them, he's saying them, are you serious? You're gonna use them to punish our sin? Why can't you just give us some circumstantial nudges in the right direction? This feels like a hammer, Lord. This feels like devastation. We probably need some pruning, but you're bringing a chainsaw. Lord, how can this be? And it really changes our focus from the them to the you, the entity that is also addressed in Habakkuk's second complaint. He turns it to the Lord. He turns it to Yahweh. And he says, you, verse 12, he says, are you not from everlasting, O Yahweh my God, my Holy One? Yahweh my God. It's so intimate, it's so personal, this invocation of God's personal covenant-making name. And then, Eluhenu, my God. Adonai, my God, my Holy One. Who are you? Who do you think you are, Lord? Aren't you the promise-making God? Aren't you the promise-keeping God? Didn't you promise that your people will never perish from the earth? Didn't you promise that you would protect us? Isn't this punishment way too harsh? Habakkuk goes on in verse 13. He says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. He's saying, Lord, you're supposed to be good. You're supposed to be holy. You're supposed to be loving. And you, a holy God, are going to use them to punish us? To punish the sin of our people? How can a loving God use something that sounds so utterly evil and irredeemable? How can a holy God use something instrumentally that is so awful and evil and terrible? And so we see Habakkuk's gaining steam. He's really, he's really giving it to the Lord. He's really saying, what for? Why is this the dynamic? And so we come to the third entity. He asks about us. Lord, do you think we deserve this? Who do you think we are? And it really gets pointed in verse 14 when Habakkuk says, in this complaint mode, he says, Lord, you make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. And this is, this is a, such a strong image Lord, are we like so many fish mindlessly swimming around just out here in the water 
waiting to be caught, just opening our mouth and getting snared by the hook or being caught up in the net that we can't swim away from, are we done for? Do you, O Lord, think of humankind as just so many mindless creatures? Are we as expendable as a school of fish? Are you going to idly watch these terrible people swallow us up? I can see, Lord, that you are doing something. Are you going to say something about this? Habakkuk, in the way that he's addressing the Lord in this passage, is being so brutally honest with the Lord. The second complaint is so direct. And he's raising the question. The question that we also wrestle with from time to time. How can a holy God use such awful things to accomplish his will? And this can be raised in many seasons of our life when we see oppression that seems to run unchecked when we see an injustice that seems to go unanswered, when we see killing that is senseless, when we see something that looks like excessive punishment, we at times ask the same question, how can a holy God allow this? How can a holy God even use this to accomplish his will? Does God really allow this kind of oppression? Does God really use this kind of stuff to help us? And this question is audacious. Like his first complaint, Habakkuk is calling Yahweh into account. The first complaint was to account for how much sin and idolatry were running rampant in God's people. And the Lord answers this and says, I'm going to raise up this terrible empire to come and address these problems. And Habakkuk is really wondering to himself and asking the Lord, Seriously? You're going to bring in this nuclear option? You're going to bring a people whose sin and idolatry is so much worse? You're going to let them obliterate us? Is that really justice? Is that really good? It is this audacity of Habakkuk to call Yahweh into account. This is beyond speaking truth to power. It is speaking truth to the ultimate power to the one true God. And we may struggle with this. We may find ourselves wondering how God can allow disappointments and calamities to just pile up on us. This has been a difficult year. No one has had an easy time of it this year. So much so that many of the things that we see around us are just reminders of how difficult a year 2020 has been. And we may wonder the things we're encountering, the job loss, the diagnoses, the loss of relationships, we're wondering why these things come to us. And we may wonder if the Lord is allowing too many hard things to happen to us. We may wonder if he really is good and holy, if he allows hatred and conflict to seemingly run unchecked. We may wonder if he really is just when so many things remain that are unfair, unjust, and evil. How can a good God allow and even use these things for our good? These are the questions that we really do struggle with. And what we see in Habakkuk is 
asking that question, bringing it directly to God, exercising the kind of faith like we talked about when he made his first complaint. It exercises extraordinary faith to bring the complaint to God, to believe that he will welcome it and answer it, to believe that he is a God who is open to us relating to him, asking our questions, bringing our struggles to him. But there's also in this evidence of a faith that is willing to await an answer that has in it an assumption that God is going to respond, that he's going to do the things he says he's going to do and that he's going to respond to us, that he's going to bring to us a a measure of wisdom for facing our trial as James would tell us, but also just a measure of faith to trust him in the midst of things we don't have certainty around. When we get to that first verse of the second chapter, Habakkuk has seemingly gone on his rant. He has said, Lord, how can this be? How can a holy God use unholy things to accomplish his will? And Habakkuk says, in a, in a tone of resolution, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This resolution, this intentionality on Habakkuk's part, you don't go to the watchtower if you're not expecting something to happen. That's what watchtowers are for. They're to see the gathering army who, come may, who may come to lay siege to your city. You use the watchtower to look out for the messenger who brings news from faraway places. You don't go to the watchtower if you don't expect something to happen. This is a posture of readiness, of waiting and watching for what God is gonna do in this situation to look and see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. This is Habakkuk's humility. He not only has this posture of readiness, he has this posture of humility. There's a lot baked into it. It's as if he's saying, I know I've said a lot of things and I may have to answer for them myself. In fact, the message translation renders this portion I am braced for the worst. Having challenged God directly for what he sees happening around him and for the way God is intending to remedy it through the national chemotherapy of oppression by an idolatrous empire, this sounds awful. And Habakkuk is readying himself for the awfulness to come and also for an answering, an answer that he expects will come. Again, you don't go to the watchtower if you don't expect something to happen. And so he's going there expecting something to happen, expecting that God is going to answer, that the Lord's going to come with action and with an answer. There are many who would encounter the way God is dealing with things in this book and say to themselves, if this is how a good and holy God deals with things, then I don't want to believe in a God like that. But that's not Habakkuk's response. That I don't want to believe in a God like that may be spoken out of a sense of being overwhelmed. It might be spoken out of reactivity. But Habakkuk isn't being reactive. And though his situation is overwhelming, he 
response is to wait and watch. It's a responsive, reflective, intentional posture of readiness and humility, waiting and watching. Certainly, he has called Yahweh into account, but he expects an answer from the God who is there and who is doing something. As we continue in this protracted season of isolation, separation, where our gatherings are very small or constrained to being just online, we may wonder why God is allowing this. Why are we in this struggle, Lord? As we struggle with the realities of injustice and the seeming evaporation of civility and political discourse, we may get to the point where we're, at, we're questioning God directly, wanting to know why he would let these things happen. And God uses things that from our limited perspectives are nonsensical to bring about the things that he has intended for the world. And so where, where do I go looking for the comfort in such a season? I consider the disciples. On that Saturday after Jesus' crucifixion, on that Sabbath when they were limited in what they were able to do, and they had just seen something so devastating, and they're wondering, how could the humiliating execution of their teacher, the one who they all thought by that point was the Christ, the Messiah who would change everything for them, how could him dying and being crucified by the Romans, how could that be good? How could that be the thing God uses to change everything? I mean, that's utter defeat, right? That's it. Whatever we thought we were doing, it's over. And yet, God uses that seeming utter defeat to transform everything into absolute and unalterable victory. Jesus raised from the dead, defeating death and overturning that catastrophe of sin. The disciples, seeing Jesus alive, talking with him, seeing him resurrected, start to see how the redemption of all things is beginning to take shape the good ending has already begun, even though it's not all here yet. And that is the beauty of the gospel, that our redemption has already begun, though it's not yet complete. And this is our confidence, that our holy God has defeated sin by his only sons becoming sin for us, carrying that weight, that debt, that we could never remedy ourselves. And this gives us the hope that we need to wait and watch for the ultimate revealing of God's complete redemption of us, our lives, and all things. And this kind of hope, this kind of robust hope in the God who uses the things that from our perspective make no sense into things that bless us. We can face the circumstances that we're in, the circumstances that feel overwhelming, and we can know that he's at work in doing good things, even when the indications seem so dire, so awful. And we can take a posture like Habakkuk and we can content ourselves in waiting and watching because you don't wait and watch when you don't believe something's going to happen. You don't wait and watch when you don't believe someone is doing something. 
our God is doing something. He's going to show up and he's going to show up big. And we can embrace this opportunity to trust him in the midst of our dire circumstances and know that he's going to show up. We can wait and watch with confidence that he's going to do it and it's going to be beautiful. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so that you are truly at work. You were at work in Habakkuk's day and Lord, the scope of it was hard to understand. Lord, you're at work in our day, right now, today. And Lord, we can't, we can't envision all of what you're doing because you were working globally and individually. You are working through nations and peoples. You're working in families. And you are doing all of these things, turning these hard realities, these harsh circumstances, these things that feel like punishment, and you're working them for our good. Lord, help us to faithfully wait and watch and see how you are going to bring your good your goodness out in it, how you're going to reveal your holiness and how you bend the evil we experience into good and blessing. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust you. In Jesus' name, amen.